This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that examines contemporary issues using the principles of the Baha'i Faith as a basis. If you want information on the Baha'i Faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Jackie Odess-Gillette, my wife and a Baha'i from Hadley, Massachusetts who has lived in New England all her life and describes her spiritual journey that includes spending eight years in a commune in Western Mass. We started the interview by her describing how this journey began. Well, my spiritual journey, I would say, began when I was about 21. And um, I had had grown up in a situation where I I went to Sunday school um, and got confirmed. I was brought up as a Reformed Jew. But it wasn't a spiritual experience. It was more of a historical experience and a cultural experience. But there was never really any talk about God or the spiritual life. So religion to me was not a living a living thing. Um, and I really didn't know anything about God or I didn't have any ideas about the afterlife or another dimension until I was about 21. And what, and what happened at that time was that um, I would have anxiety attacks sometimes. Certain situations would create anxiety attacks. So this was beginning to happen to me when I was 21. I mean, it had happened before, but it was happening again. And And what happened was... I felt as though something descended on me. It was like a peace that just made me very calm. And every time I would start to get really anxious about this particular thing, this feeling of peace would come over me. And I called it grace. I knew that it was spiritual. I had never experienced anything like it before. But I knew it was coming from a spiritual realm, and I recognized it as being grace, even though that wasn't a word that I had ever used or that was part even of my religious background. It was more of a it had more of a Christian association, but I, I knew that that was what it was. But at that time, I was faced with a choice, and the the, the fact was that. I could also calm myself down by smoking pot. And I came to realize that I had a choice. I could either choose to depend on this grace that was happening to me, or I could choose to depend on the marijuana. And um, that was like a really pivotal moment in my life, I feel. How were you able to call on this grace? Well, that's the thing. That's the whole thing. I didn't call on it. It happened. It, it, there was no prayer involved. I just, 
it would just happen to me. I would f- start to get really overwhelmed with anxiety, and then this grace would descend on me. And that was like the point. The point was it wasn't something I had control over. It's something that happened to me. It was a gift. But the marijuana was something I had control over. And I realized that I had to make a choice between these two things. And I've come to believe that there are times in life when one is presented with a choice that one has the capacity to make either way. Um, And those, I think, are really important moments in life. Unfortunately, I chose the drug. And I feel as though that choice shaped my life for many years to come and that I went down some extremely difficult paths that I would not have had to go down if I had made the choice to depend on the grace that was coming from God or the spiritual realm. Mm. And I feel as though um, that was one of the biggest mistakes that I've made in my life was that. However, I did make that choice. A little while later, I had another experience that was very important, a spiritual experience. And yes, at that time I was smoking pot um, during that period that this other thing happened, but it was still a spiritual experience and it still was a stepping stone for me in my life. And what it was, uh, was that, of course, having been raised Jewish, I was not raised with um, a recognition of Jesus and his station, his who he is and I had never really thought about it much but being a singer there was a song that I used to sing by Leonard Cohen called Suzanne and there was a a verse in that song about Jesus and it and the words went and Jesus was a sailor when he walked upon the water and he spent a long time watching from his lonely wooden tower And when he knew for certain only drowning men could see him, he said, All men shall be sailors then, until the sea shall free them. But he himself was broken long before the sky would open, forsaken, almost human. He sank beneath your wisdom like a stone. And you want to travel with him, and you want to travel blind. And you think maybe you'll trust him, or he's touched your perfect body with his mind. And I used to sing that song all the time. And I used to, and it was like a meditation for me. And, and I realized that I believed in Jesus. And... Um, it was an amazing experience, but it was so simple. It, it, it wasn't like bells ringing, and I didn't have anybody knocking on my door or talking to me. It was something that happened in my heart, and it was like a door opened in my heart or a, a flower opened in my heart, and I realized that I was a believer. And I went home and I told my mother, and I said that, I realized that I believed in Jesus and that I also realized that everyone did. And she looked at me with kind of wonderment and she said, I don't. And I was really surprised. 
What made you think everybody did? Because what I realized was that it had been in my heart all along. It was locked up in my heart. But that I had, that's just it, it was locked in my heart. I didn't have access to it. So that's when the door opened, I realized it had always been there. And I think that's what I meant, that it's in everyone's heart. But they don't always, they're not always able to open that door. It was very precious to me and very simple. And my love for Jesus was very beautiful and profound, but I never, I never attend, it never occurred to me to go to a church. I don't know why, but I never thought, oh, now I believe in Jesus, so that means I have to go to a church. So I never did. And it was like my, my study of the life of Christ was a personal study. I never, I don't know, I never drew on Christian theologians or anything like that. It was just my own relationship and my own study. For me, this has been kind of an issue my whole life since then because my understanding of the life of Christ is so different from what people who call themselves Christians talk about because for me it was his humility and his incredible insight and wisdom and truthfulness and gentleness that really was the key to who he was for me it didn't have anything to do with the fact that he didn't have an earthly father it didn't have anything to do with the tales about rising from the dead. It, it had nothing to do with that. It was his spirit that touched my heart. Totally. And that's why I have such a difficult time when people make the love of Jesus about those things that to me are not as important as who he was in the way that he lived. And because to me, he was a perfect human being. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like I can strive and become like Jesus or anybody can do that. He was in a category that regular human beings cannot attain to me. You know, but it was about his spirit, not about these other things. Yes, I believed in some of the miracles because I think that... Um, there's a lot that we don't know, and the power of the mind, the power of faith, and the power of spirit can transcend physical laws, and I think that there's probably a scientific reason for that, but it was the way that he lived that to me was the true miracle. Um, you learned that from reading the, the New Testament, the Gospels. Yeah, but you know, the thing is you can't grow up in this society and not know stories about the life of Christ. I mean, it's just in, it's in the culture. And that was how I recognized Christ, was because of, of the cultural um, immersion in, in his life, really. You know. So most uh, Jews, you think, are familiar with the uh, life of Christ? And... I think to a degree, yeah. I think it's, I mean, I studied more after, re after this happened to me, but I think that, you know, you know certain stories, you hear them. You know, you know what he stands for. 
I don't think you can grow up in this culture and not know what Jesus stands for and not really know what his spirit was. Whether you call him the son of God or or whatever, you know, I mean, Jesus didn't call himself the son of God. Jesus called himself the son of man. So it's kind of confusing to me why people call him the son of God. I think it's really mysterious. What does it mean, the son of man? You know, that's something that he, he used that phrase all the time. We never talk about that. But yet, that's the key to who he was. And I think that deserves a lot of meditation. So, to continue my story, I joined a commune not too long after that. I guess it was a few years. I guess I was 24 when I joined the commune. This commune was in the hills of western Massachusetts. It was in Warwick, Massachusetts, which is a little tiny town way up north on the border of New Hampshire. And um, there was a commune there called the Brotherhood of the Spirit, which I joined in 1970. It was August 1970. I was very lucky to find that place because they had four rules. No smoking, no drinking, no drugs, and no promiscuity. So in one fell swoop, I quit all of my bad habits, which probably saved my life. And so I really owe that commune my life because of the fact that these rules were there. Now, it's true that eventually people disregarded those rules, but for me, they remained very important, and they really helped me. Unfortunately, by that time, I was very, very mentally disturbed from the drugs that I had taken. I had smoked a lot of pot. I had also taken psychedelic drugs like mescaline and LSD, and I was really not in touch with reality in a certain way. I was in a very extreme state when I joined this commune, and it made life very, very difficult because I was not really able to relate to people in a normal way, and it was very difficult. Mm in this this commune was run by a uh, a charismatic leader it took different names over the years i lived there for 8 years um it became metallica's aquarian concept for a little while and now it's called the renaissance community and really there's not much left of it there are some buildings and some people that live still in gill the founder of the commune michael metallica died a couple years ago of cancer. But at the time, he was a charismatic leader with a tremendous amount of power over the people who were there. And he taught things like, oh, he taught reincarnation, he taught sort of a New Age Christianity uh, based on the Aquarian Gospel, which is an account of the life of Christ. I I think the name who the name of the man who wrote it was Levi and I think that he said that he received it from divine inspiration sometime around the turn of the century 
It was early 1900s. Um, it was a beautiful book that in, in some ways diverged from the Bible, but in many ways didn't. Uh, there was a little bit of uh, Hinduism incorporated into our studies and uh, also psychic learning. He taught us about psychic things. And um, so, you know, we were sort of involved in a mishmash of Christianity, psychic powers, uh, reincarnation, meditation, and so forth. But unfortunately, what I consider now to be the true spiritual virtues of humility, truthfulness, kindness, uh, self-sacrifice, um, those were not principles that we adhered to in the commune. It was a very competitive place built on a hierarchy with Michael at the top. And pretty much everybody wanted to get close to Michael, both women and men, and would step on each other to do it. And weakness was not tolerated. There was an unspoken rule that one shouldn't show any weakness or sadness or depression. These things were not considered uh, spiritual. You always had to look good. And it was very tough. Now, I had a really hard time because of my... the damage that, had, that I had incurred from taking these drugs, as I said, put me in a very extreme condition. It just wasn't a healthy place. There were some exciting things that happened. I was very lonely there. And I was I was want I was want to be an extremist. I was very much an extremist. I won't dwell on my time in the community, except to say that I went through um, some cycles of manic depression that lasted six or nine months at a time, and eventually, I was convinced by my mother and my uncle to commit myself to a mental institution and this was in 1977 so I had joined the commune in 1970 and by 1977 they had talked me into committing myself and I went to a private institution in Connecticut and I was there for four months and while I was there I had some experiences that changed my life one of them was that I began to realize that my problem was really a social problem. I did not respect other people. And the way that I realized this was interesting because um, in order to gain any privileges as an inmate of this hospital, one had to be voted on by the um, staff as well as the patients. And you had to be voted unanimously in order to get any privileges, like for instance to sleep in a private room instead of in the living room or to go out for passes or anything. So I really had to start listening to people and I began to discover, and I, I discovered a principle and the principle was if more than one person tell me the same thing I should listen. So that was a principle that I discovered. 
I also began to discover some of the roots of my problems. For instance, I realized that anger was something that had been very, very destructive in my life and that I really needed to figure it out, how to deal with anger. And there were other things as well. And so I committed myself to those processes as well. Then I also had a spiritual experience, which was that I was there around Easter time and I saw TV dramatic presentation of the life of Christ that had a profound effect on me. And I remember so clearly getting down on my knees and crying and saying, for ten years I've been saying that I was going to serve God. And all I've been doing has been to fall on my face. Now I'm asking God to accept me as a servant. That was like so profound because it showed me that it was my arrogance that was keeping me from what I truly wanted. And from that moment on, I never had another manic depressive episode. So I feel like I graduated from the mental hospital. <laughs> I had dropped out of college and uh, felt, and, and the commune was not, not a very successful experience for me. So for me, the, the mental hospital was like my, my first graduation. I felt like I graduated from the mental hospital with honors. And I went on, and I did go back for a year to the community. But after about a year, I was involved in a legal battle with my mother over custody of my son. I had had a child in 1974 in the commune. And when I went into the hospital, he was three and a half, and he had gone to live with my mother. And after I got out of the hospital, my mother didn't want to relinquish custody. So, well, because I was out of the hospital, but, you know, I was still pretty extreme. I mean, one doesn't change years and years and years of selfish, angry, extreme, misled behavior overnight. Yes, I was working on it, for sure. I was praying a lot for guidance, but I was still just re rebuilding my life. I mean, when I got out of the hospital, I remember that I had a conversation with God, and I said, God, you know, I have no money, I have no education, my family won't talk to me, I have no friends. And my life is a complete mess. I've lost my child. And I said, you know, you're going to have to fix my life because I can't fix it. I said, I'll help, but you're going to have to do it. And that was what I said. That was what I said to God after I got out of the hospital. So I moved back to the commune, but I very shortly after that got an apartment 
close by because I thought it would help my my case for getting my child back. Close by meaning? Close by to where the commune was. By that time, the commune was mainly located in in Gill and Turner's Falls, Mass. And so I, when I left the, the hospital, I went back to the commune. I was still in the commune. But but shortly thereafter, I got an apartment in town because I thought it would help my case not to be living in the commune. But I was still associated with the commune. You know, I still believed that Michael was the return of the disciple Peter, the apostle Peter. I still believed that he was come to save the world and that this commune was going to save the world. You know, I I was still brainwashed. We were all brainwashed. Certainly... Out of fairness to the place, I should say that it offered something more positive to many people. But for me, it was just very difficult and painful. However, as I said, I owe it my life. Because maybe I didn't have a great time there, but I did get off drugs, drinking, promiscuity, and cigarettes. So that was worth that was worth it, even if it took eight years out of my life to do it. So... You know, I have nothing to complain about. But anyway, um, so I lived in I lived in this apartment for a while, and that was when I met John, John Ross. Um, John had come to the commune the year before with the Love family from California. It was a commune in California somewhere, and they had you know found out about our commune. They'd come to visit, and John had come, and. John had a beautiful voice, and he was a great songwriter. He used to be the um, he used to be the road manager for Seals and Crofts. He was a close friend of Jimmy Seals. And when Michael heard him sing, Michael offered him the use of the recording studio that was owned by the Renaissance community. So John came back to the area um, to make use of that offer. And one day, I was in my apartment, and uh, my I lived in like a three-family house, and I had the second floor. My door was slightly ajar, and this stranger came up the stairs with the landlord and knocked on my door, which was very unusual in New England. People don't just talk to you like that. But John was from the West Coast, and he wanted to know about the apartment because he was thinking of renting it. And he told me that he was a musician, which I found really exciting. And he was he was like a folk into folk rock and, and acoustic guitar, which is also what I was into. So I was kind of excited about that. But then I didn't see him. And then about 10 days later, he moved in. And when he moved in, I had this, this feeling, this impression, this knowing. I knew that he had moved in because of me. Now, I don't mean that he had consciously moved in because of me, but I knew that the reason that he was in that building was because of me. And I didn't know how I knew that. And I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it. Well, we became very close friends, and John, it turns out, was a Baha'i, a member of the Baha'i faith. Now, I had heard about the Baha'i faith because when I was pregnant... In my birthing class, there was a young woman who was also pregnant, who was a Baha'i, and her name was Bertha Petrusky, and she was from Montague. And she had, and we had become friends, and she had told me about the Baha'i faith. And I remember at that time thinking, 
I wasn't interested at all because, you know, I was really involved in the in the commune, which I thought was the end-all and be-all of spirituality. But I thought the word Baha'i was the most beautiful word I'd ever heard. Mm. It just, the sound of the word to me was just exquisite. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think about it. I forgot about it. And then I met John. And John talked about the faith all the time. And I was interested. I was open. But during that period of time, I went through kind of a traumatic experience with Michael, who was the leader of the commune. Now, remember, I put him on a pedestal. I mean, to me, he was the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. I really believed that he was. And that his mission was to save the world. One day, I tried to talk to Michael about some concerns I had regarding the commune. Because what I saw was I saw women getting pregnant, a number of women getting pregnant, Mm -hmm. and guys not taking any responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself... We're supposed to be saving the world, but we're going backwards. There's a problem here. This is not okay. So, you know, really believing that Michael was sincere, I tried to talk to him about it. Well, what he did was he lashed out at me. And he said some very, very cruel things to me that were only, were not true. And I knew that they weren't true. He was trying to hurt me. And I remember that he was surrounded by his cronies, the people that, you know, would always travel with him everywhere, his buddies. And um, he was doing his best, really, to destroy me. I could see that. And I came back, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, he had absolutely no justification for what he did. Mm. And I knew in that moment that he was wrong for what he had done which was for me a revelation because I really believed in this man totally you know so for me to be able to say that he was wrong was a really big deal now and remember we had been trained we had been brainwashed so it was like anytime we had a negative thought we we were told that we were being negative and we had to be positive so that was how we were manipulated that was part of how we were manipulated so anyway um, I told John about this and that was the beginning of my eyes really beginning to become open to what was really going on in that commune. Mm-hmm. But the next day, I had convinced myself that he was... I had made excuses for him mm-hmm. and convinced myself that it was my fault. And I mentioned it to John. And John said something to me that broke the chains that I will never forget. He, he said to me, you mean you deserved it? And I said, yes. And then he looked at me and he said, but God is merciful. And when he said that, it was like, I knew it was true. I couldn't deny it. And I started, and so then when I would go back to the commune, it was like, before that, sometimes I'd see one one thing and then I'd see another thing. Like I'd see it in black and I'd see it in white and I'd see it in black and I'd see it in white. I began to go back and I would see it and it was all beginning to come into focus and it was like always the same and I began to see it for what it really was. And I saw that people were very closed mm-hmm. and very shut down mm-hmm. and that Michael was, 
you know, a drug addict and a drug dealer. And many things. And it became really clear to me. And the chains of my addiction were broken. My addiction to the commune. Well, the other thing that happened was I didn't want to hear anything about the Baha'i faith after that because I just felt like I had given eight years of my life to this man and to this group of people. Mm-hmm. I had done nothing but fall on my face and go through agony. And it was all a mirage. He was a charlatan. It was all false. And I didn't want to hear anything. I was really hurt. And I told him, I said, I don't want to hear about your trip. To John? Yeah. I don't want to hear anything about your trip. That's what I said. (laughs) So he didn't. He respected my wishes. He didn't talk to me about it anymore. But the thing was, John talked to everyone. And I was with him all the time. So... Even though he wasn't talking to me, he was talking to the waitresses, he was talking to the people on the street, he was talking to any friends we might meet. So I still heard stuff. Some of the things I heard really affected me. One thing that he said was, Baha'u'llah wept his life away. Well, that really blew my mind, because remember, spirituality for me had been the commune. And... Remember, I said, weakness wasn't allowed. And, you know, we were told to meditate and transcend the anguish of the world. We really weren't taught that we were, that we were, I mean, they, 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 they gave lip service to the idea of compassion, but it wasn't modeled. Compassion and mercy were not modeled in that commune. And here, John was saying, Baha'u'llah wept his life away, and it just... I don't know how to explain it. It 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 cut through everything and went deep into my heart. And I it, that was it was so real. A, a similar thing was I saw a picture of Abdul Baha. Now Abdul Baha was the son of Baha'u'llah, who later was appointed by Baha'u'llah as the leader of the Baha'i faith after the death of Baha'u'llah. And we time frame were we talking about? In my life or in the the history of the faith? Well, oh, Baha'u'llah was born in 1817 in Persia and died in 1892 in the Holy Land. So Abdu'l-Baha became the leader of the Baha'i faith after the death of Baha'u'llah until his own death in 1921. But we we don't have access to photographs of Baha'u'llah because he did not want people to worship his picture. But we do have photographs of Abdu'l-Bahá. And I always used to look at photographs of all these different gurus and swamis and maharajis and all these different people. And I used to say, if they're really spiritual, I ought to be able to look at their picture and see it. And I would look at their pictures, and I wouldn't be able to tell whether they were criminals or holy men. But when I saw this picture of Abdu'l-Bahá, I saw it. And I can't, I couldn't even have told you at the time what it was. I just knew that I saw it. And I saw something. And when I think about it now, I realize I just saw this gentleness and compassion. You know, it just, I saw it. 
and it just melted my heart. It was so beautiful. And then the third thing was the the name Baha'u'llah. It was like I recognized that name. I felt as though I knew that name before I was born. I felt like wherever I was before I came to this world, I knew that name. And then there was a fourth thing that happened to me. There was a tablet that Baha'u'llah had written. Baha'u'llah wrote many, many writings in his own hand. And sometimes he would write tablets, and tablets were like letters, sacred letters. And there was a tablet that he had written called the Tablet of Ahmad. And one day John said to me that he wanted me to read it. And I read it. And I came to this part in the tablet where it says, Thus doth the nightingale, that was him, the nightingale, utter his call unto you from this prison. He hath but to deliver this clear message. Whosoever desireth, let him turn aside from this counsel. And whosoever desireth, let him choose the path to his Lord. O people, if ye deny these verses, by what proof have ye believed in God? Produce it, O assemblage of false ones. Nay, by the one in whose hand is my soul, they are not and never shall be able to do this, even should they combine to assist one another. Well, when I read that, I felt like I am not going to be the one to deny this person. I felt his powerlessness. I felt his total vulnerability because Baha'u'llah lived a Christ-like life where he was beaten and tortured and banished and threatened and imprisoned and chained. and I mean, almost anything that could happen to a human being happened to him. And all for the purpose of delivering the message of the oneness of humankind and the oneness of religion and the oneness of God. And when I read that tablet, and particularly that part, what I felt was his utter helplessness, his utter vulnerability. Because like Christ, who would not save himself even though he had the power to, Baha'u'llah accepted all manner of suffering. And it just came through. And I don't even know how to explain explain it. It's just that I real I felt his helplessness and his purity. And it was so interesting because the same thing that had happened to me with Jesus Christ where a door had opened in my heart and a flower had opened in my heart happened to me with Baha'u'llah and it was the same spirit and I was I was scared because I knew it was going to change my life but I've always been devoted to the truth And I knew that I could not back away from this because I was afraid. I knew that I had to have courage. And I knew I had to do what was true, honor the truth. So I stepped through the doorway. 
And right before I did so, I should tell you about another a vision that I had, actually. It was during the time that John and I were friends, but before I had come to the point where I realized that I had to become a Baha'i. At the time I was working at night in uh, at the Waitley truck, truck stop, so I would sleep during the day, and there was this one day, and I guess it was... It must have been November 11th because John, because I was lying in my apartment trying to sleep and I couldn't sleep. And John stopped by and he said that he was going to an observance of the birth of Baha'u'llah, which is always observed the evening of November 11th. And it was during the day at the time, so it could have been November 12th. Um, I'm not really sure. It was one or the other. And I, I couldn't sleep, and, you know, I tried eating something, and that didn't work, and I tried all kinds of things to get myself to sleep, and nothing worked. And I had this feeling, this feeling came over me that nothing that I could think of, nothing in life could possibly satisfy the hunger that I was feeling in my soul that day. It was overwhelming and nothing on the earth could fill it and then i began to see these clouds they were like golden brown clouds and they were massed in the heavens and they were moving and and um and then i saw the sun come through the clouds and at that moment i heard a voice and the voice said, Up until now, you have looked upon God as your friend helping you with your life. But from this moment on, your life will be focused around God. And those clouds and the sun, they were the symbol of the fulfillment of the prophecy about Jesus coming in the clouds. That was how I recognized Baha'u'llah. Now, at that moment, I didn't realize it had anything to do with Baha'u'llah. It, I, this just happened to me. It was shortly thereafter that I became a Baha'i. And I, I wrote a song about that. I asked Jackie to play the song for us. wandering in the valley of search I looked beneath each rock and stone and I searched each face for of the traceless one I 
sent an angel to the valley of search the comforter became a Baha'i. I knew very, very little about the Baha'i faith when I joined it. Because, you know, I became a Baha'i on from my intuition or on faith. I mean, I told you the story, but I didn't really know very much about it. But the more I found out about it, the more I was amazed to find out that it embraced these truths I'd always believed. For instance, um, one of the fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith is the equality of women and men, which I had always believed in. And I didn't know that there was a religion that espoused that. I also found out that the Baha'i faith, um, one of another fundamental principle was that uh, the abolishment of all forms of racism and prejudice, which had always been very important to me. Um, also, the independent investigation of truth, the idea that everyone must investigate religious truth for themselves and reality for themselves that just to uh, adopt the religion that your family was isn't acceptable in the eyes of God that you yourself have to go through your own process of search so many things and then of course the oneness of religion the thing about that was I'd always believed in the oneness of religion when I was having my worst 
times in the commune when I was the most depressed. One time I just prayed, and I prayed to Moses and Jesus and Mohammed and Krishna and Buddha. And I mean, it never occurred to me to put one above the other. I, I, I always knew that they were one. I knew that they just came at different times to different people in the world, but that they all came from God. Never did it occur to me that they were somehow competing with each other. So the idea of the oneness of religion that Baha'u'llah teaches and that actually Muhammad taught also just was so obvious to me. So be- then began my Baha'i life, and it was it was dif- difficult. It was very difficult. Um, for probably 10 years I would um, do things you know I, I had the commune standards inculcated in me the commune was a very confrontative place um, and it was very easy for me to be confrontative I had that type of personality anyway uh, there were and I would do that all the time. I would confront people all the time. I would just do all kinds of things. And then I'd stop dead in my tracks, maybe at night when I was reading from the Baha'i writings or praying or something, and I'd realize, oh, my God, this is diametrically opposed to what Baha'u'llah teaches. And then I would have to take myself in hand, and I would have to force myself to turn 180 degrees away from what I was doing to what Baha'u'llah said to do. And this process just repeated itself over and over and over again, you know, for probably 10 years. You know, it was very difficult. I, w- I got in trouble all the time. Uh, I remember one time in the Baha'i faith we have spiritual assemblies because we don't have clergy. But we elect, we have elected bodies that um, conduct the affairs of the faith. So when people have problems, they can go before the local spiritual assembly. And I remember one time I was having a problem with a woman, um, and I this was very shortly after I'd become a Baha'i. I think I'd been a Baha'i a year or a year and a half. And I thought, I'm going to take this woman to the spiritual assembly. And I thought, I'm really going to nail her, you know. And I went to the spiritual assembly, and totally backfired. It was like I was the one that got nailed. Because what I learned was that's not how Baha'is go about solving problems. It's not about isolating somebody and really letting them have it. It's about oneness. It's about learning how to get along with each other. It's about sacrificing your own ego and learning how to love somebody that isn't lovable. And yes, the Baha'i assemblies, they certainly do um, mete out justice, but they try everything in their power to help people to address problems in a, in a healthy way. And, it, and they do it in a very loving, supportive way. So when I went there with this agenda, I learned very quickly that that is just not what it's all about. And... Um, it was very difficult, you know. It was very difficult. I, I, I had a very, very hard time for many, 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 many years, because I had been so damaged between the drugs and then the commune. I had been so damaged 
that it took me years and years and years and years of studying the Baha'i faith and trying to put it into practice and praying for help and assistance to to change my personality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, I'm still working on it. I mean, there are still places in me that I feel are very unworthy and of of what it is to be a Baha'i that are not... I feel that a Baha'i has love, compassion, concern, and respect for all humankind without discrimination. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you hang around with everybody because some people, if they're going to pull you off of what you're striving for, it's better for both of you that you don't have contact. But you can always pray for people. And I always feel like if there's someone that I cannot get along with, that it's my shortcoming. Because I have not grown to the point where I have the capacity to encompass that person with divine love and wisdom. But I I will say that um, difficult as it's been, there have been marvelous rewards marvelous, marvelous rewards. One of them is my marriage. I got married a year after I became a Baha'i, and I've been married ever since, which has been 26 years, and we have a wonderful marriage. I mean, our relationship is much better now than it was in the beginning. We work on our marriage. We um, we have we have principles in common that we hold ourselves and each other to. It's a beautiful thing. It's really a beautiful thing. We've worked through some horrendous problems together and separately. You know, I'm really grateful. And I never could have done that if I hadn't been a Baha'i. There's no way. I I mean, I remember one time I was really at my wit's end, and I think I would have wa- I know I would have left. I would have walked out the door, and the only thing that kept me from it was I couldn't let Baha'u'llah down. There was no way that I could let Baha'u'llah down. And then, on top of that, we have um, six children between us. We had three when we started, yours and mine, and then uh, we proceeded to have three more children, and they're, they're wonderful, wonderful human beings that give us so much joy. And I'm back in school and studying music. I feel that I never could have done this if I had not been a Baha'i. There were so many changes that I needed to go through. There was so much transformation that needed to happen for me. All these things that are happening uh, would never have been possible. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Jackie Odess Gillette, my wife and a Baha'i from Hadley, Massachusetts, speaking about her lifelong spiritual journey and her experience in the 70s at a Western Mass commune called the Renaissance Community. There happens to be a film about the commune Jackie lived in called Free Spirits. It's playing at the Academy of Music today, Saturday, May 6th and Sunday, May 7th. Show times are 4.15 and 6.15. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you're welcome to go to the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. 
or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Des Gillette, host of A Baha'i Perspective on Saturday mornings here on WXOJLP. As you know, nothing is really for free. Although Valley Free Radio has the word free in it, we still have to pay the electric bill and the rent and any repairs or replacement parts to our very used equipment. So we hate to hear the sound of... That's right, dead air. So please join us in supporting local radio programs that you won't even hear at your local public radio station. You can send donations to the Media Education Foundation, Valley Free Radio's sponsor, at 60 Masonic Street, Northampton, 01060, and help us to stay on the air. Thanks. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM your Valley Free Radio Station.